Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Los Angeles today with my good friend and best-selling author, Bradley Trevor Grieve. Uh, Bradley, it's great that we got to, got to hang out. Uh, we've, we've known each other for quite a few years, but you know, in actually digging through your background, I, dis- I discovered all of these wonderful new facts <laughs> <laughs> that, you, uh, that you once commanded a paratroop uh, platoon. That is true. I have uh, the x-rays to prove it. <laughs> you are a certified cosmonaut from the Russian space program. A lot of vomiting in helmets, yes. <laughs> and you're a former Polynesian rocklifting champion. Again, my back is ruined for life, but yes, I did win the uh, the Ha'apiti uh, Morea rocklifting title in the Haver in 2006. You actually, this actually looks like the talking points for a DOS Equus ad, like the most interesting one <laughs> in the world. I was looking to see if you'd parallel parked a train or you'd warned a psychic of their impending death. <laughs> no, I, I, have, I have, have never done that. But um, <clears throat> no, I, my life has been a, a glorious misadventure. Uh, my, my one famous friend, uh, John Cleese of Monty Python uh, fame, describes my life as one extended suicide attempt. <laughs> You've survived 17 surgeries. <laughs> That's right, and five treatments for rabies. Uh, and it's really, now that Was I that know- five separate occasions? Yes, yes. I've been bitten by a number of, uh, of wild bats and monkeys. Right. In fact, I was actually face scraped by a bat, a very large a fruit bat, due to a uh, synthetic musk in a cologne given to me by my mother for Christmas. So, you know, Whatever I say over the course of the next 30 minutes, however wise it seems, you need to, you know, consider that it's cached. <laughs> well, this, this actually is one of the classic lines of the Dos Equus ads, that his, his blood is cologne, which makes him irresistible. So. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you've, you've managed to survive long enough for us to hang out. And, and um, of course, most people would know you from your wonderful books, uh, starting with the Blue Day book. You've sold over 30 million copies now. Uh, that's right. Um, the Blue Day book was the was actually the eighth book I'd written over almost a decade, but it was my first book published, and it went on to be a great success, much to everyone's surprise, and uh, really launched my uh, international publishing career. A big theme of of all your writing and work has been about animals and conservation and our relationship to the natural world. Yes. Um, what led you into that? Well, I've loved wildlife and wild places ever since I was a little boy, and to a certain degree, I've never really grown up. <laughs> My first hero was the uh, British naturalist and uh, author, Gerald Durrell. And some of your listeners may have heard of him. He's sadly fading from memory since he died in the, in the 90s, but he was for a time the highest selling English language author in the world. Uh, his most famous book was My Family and Other Animals. It's part of what is now known as the Corfu Trilogy. He was the younger brother of the very esteemed British uh, writer, Lawrence Durrell of the Alexandria Quartet. All oh, right. Yeah, so there's a very literary family. Anyway, he went on to be one of the great pioneers of what we could call uh, modern conservation zoos. He founded a zoo in uh, Jersey in the Channel Islands between England and France. And the whole purpose was to be a showcase and breeding center of endangered species, but not necessarily the charismatic megafauna that, that you see on all the WWF posters, you know, tigers and pandas. 
He liked what he called the LBJs, the little brown jobbies, the ordinary little things that hold everything else together. You know, as they say, if you tug on a thread in nature, you find it attached to the rest of the world. And that web concept was really Durrell's. And, uh, so like squirrels and beavers. <laughs> Not specifically uh, squirrels and beavers, but yes, in, in some ways that's essential. Beavers are a very good example, actually, particularly here in North America. There's, um, uh, they're the, of course, they're the second largest rodent in the world, and, the second, uh, and also the second largest in, in the Americas, the largest being the, the capybara in South America. But these enormous rodents uh, create mini ecosystems that are essential to the health of, of uh, North American forests. So you, if you shoot all the beavers, as Russians and Americans tried to do in the late 1800s, uh, the whole forest ecosystem gradually unravels. Hmm. And what we have found is the reason to preserve uh, a large and charismatic animal like a beaver uh, and other things, wolves and so forth, is that they actually are the glue that binds these things together. So if you get rid of wolves, you shoot them for their pelts or because they eat your cattle and sheep, what you find is that numbers of deer and elk get out of control, they eat all the grass down to the roots, the riverbanks cave in, the wetlands mm. disappear. It's all these extraordinary things, it's all cause and effect, which is incredibly obvious if you look at it on a linear point of view, but of course, that's not how it really is. And so we're blind to the damage that we're doing. It is interesting we're at this time where we're actually trying to reintroduce previously dangerous species back into ecosystems. I, I was traveling through Iowa recently and, and they were saying there are now packs of wolves. Yes. And I said, that sounds incredibly dangerous. They said, oh no, it's good. We've been, we've been actually bringing them back in. That's right. Well, the actual, the reintroduction of wolves uh, into uh, the Northern States and including Yellowstone has been a tremendous success. And it's not without its dangers, right. but less successful for campus. <laughs> <laughs> and what's yes, it's, what's happened is that, um, as I just described uh, about the decay of a system, it actually happened in reverse. The wolves have kept the elk numbers in check, right. overgrazing, uh, particularly in what we call the riparian system. So the river-based uh, uh, regions has uh, re reduced. Plants have grown back to the river edge. The rivers are becoming more sustainable. We're getting different plant life and so forth. So all these different things that we didn't realize. And we had an example, which is completely different uh, in Australia, in Western Australia. You're familiar with Shark Bay in Western Australia? Yeah. It's probably one of the most uh, extraordinary uh, landscapes in the world, particularly those that have been photographed from space. Um, everyone who gets on the space shuttle tries to photograph Shark Bay because it looks so incredible from the air. Now, Shark Bay is home to two interesting species tiger sharks and dugong. A dugong, for the American listeners, is uh, the Australian equivalent of a manatee. The difference being that manatees are slightly longer, uh, dugongs are, uh, are shorter and fatter, the manatee has a tail like a paddle, and the dugong has a tail like a, like a dolphin. But essentially, they're both sea cows, they're both sirenus. Now, everybody loves the dugong, which is critically endangered. And the dugong feeds on seagrasses. Everybody hates tiger sharks because they're fucking terrifying and they have a specially adapted tooth that's both a stiletto <laughs> and a can opener. So they're able to eat through tortoises and sorry, turtles and things like that. There's nothing they can't bite through. So people are all for, well, let's keep the numbers of tiger sharks in check. But if you do that, and this has happened in studies in Shark Bay, if you reduce the number of tiger sharks, the number of dugong does increase, but they eat up all the seagrasses until they create a marine desert scape and then they all die out. Right. And both systems collapse. So balance is an artificial construct. 
but if we don't attempt to maintain what we have now, we'll lose it all. We're in this curious time where um, climate change and protecting the environment is set up as a trade-off against jobs and, and economic growth. So we, we can either have everyone employed and you know a chicken in every pot, yes. or, or we can protect the environment. Right, that's a, that's a facile argument that makes me want to punch you in the face. Um, <laughs> that is true in some sense. Don't get me wrong, and I come from Tasmania, which has the highest uh, percentage of World Heritage listed forests in the world, yeah. so relative to the to land area. And we often have this struggle between uh, forestry-related jobs and preserving uh, pristine habitat. It's a very difficult thing, and I'm not, I'm not uh, oblivious to the fact that the livelihoods of many families revolve around forestry industries. <clears throat> but it's misleading and backwards to think that it's one or the other. Yeah. It's, not, it's simply not the case. And as technology advances, I think we're going to find more opportunities to exploit these pristine areas in a way that doesn't damage them. And that to me is key. Now the most obvious example is tourism, but tourism alone is not the answer. Uh, but there are definitely ways for... Well, in Northern Europe they've found that balance. I, I in, mean, in some places they have. Yeah. They have. And, and we're, we're going to get there in more places. But this notion uh, that you know, a tree's value is, 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 can only be uh, attained through cutting it down and turning it into sawdust is simply untrue. There are many different things you can do with a forest to make it deliver a return. Did you did you read that book about that that, that German forester wrote about uh, you know the the kind of the wild forests in, in Germany? Uh, I don't know that I had. No, tell me about it. Yeah, no, he, he was basically saying that we he, he called it sort of the kind of the, the the forest web that essentially trees have incredible communications networks. Oh no, I've read that study. Yes, yeah. yes, I have. No, it's, it's a little bit like uh, um, Pandora in Avatar. Yeah. You know, no, that's absolutely true. And, and separate to the trees, there's all these fungal systems that go on for many, many square miles that communicate they're, with each they're, other. They're, they're communicating. They're just much slower than we thought to, to be able to measure. Sure. Plants have always communicated. There's no doubt about that. And, and they actually, I mean, you're familiar with the lemming situation, right? Okay, so start again. So lemming, Sorry, my, my extension of my knowledge of lemmings is, is an Amiga video game that I, play, okay. I played in my youth. So, so, so lemmings are a small rodent famous for jumping off cliffs, but of course that doesn't actually happen. Uh, that's a myth. Like ostriches putting their head in the sand and so forth. All this stuff is a myth. But <laughs> the lemming mass migration and plague numbers and so forth, that's all true. But what it's actually instigated by plant communication. So they eat these particular... Uh, uh, cold weather, fleshy grasses, the, and the, the plant has a choice. It can grow quickly, okay, and have limited chemical defenses, or if it's under attack, it can produce more chemical defenses which retards its growth. So if, depending on the number of lemmings, the plant decides, oh, conditions are good, I'm going to grow abundantly. That creates an overpopulation of lemmings feeding on it. The plant then reacts to this, communicating to each other and saying, hey, we've got to defend ourselves against these little fluffy bastards that are eating us. Uh, they produce a chemical defense which the lemmings don't like. The lemmings start to move looking for more hospitable pastures and that creates the lemming mass migration effect. So it's amazing the consequences as a result of plant communications and plant reacting to the external environment. Many of the negative things which we're responsible for and I just re recently finished a book uh, that I wrote about insects, and, and one of the things I was looking at was these giant ant colonies in, uh, yeah. in South America, and also the termites in Africa and Australia, and the extraordinary way they communicate and build these 
vast metropolises underground. And it's, it's on average, these ant populations in uh, South America, I'm talking specifically about leafcutter ants, have a greater population than Chicago. And they cover this enormous area of miles and miles within the forest. And of course, they're not actually just eating the plants that they, that they cut up. They're actually farmers taking these tiny pieces of leaf matter back to their nests in order to undertake agriculture to grow the fungus that they do feed on. So it's an extraordinary complex system that is so like our own and is intimately uh, connected to every aspect of the forest. So we look at it and go, oh, it's just an, uh, an ant that's going to ruin well, my picnic. I mean, an ant individually is not that bright, but it's no. part of a collective, uh, you know, a complex adaptive system. The signals allow them to create incredible works of engineering. Yes. And organization. Oh, absolutely. And, and consider this, particularly in the context of termites, um, these termites build these, and you, I don't know if you've seen them in, in South Africa or in Northern Australia, these great towers of, it's a combination of, of mud and, uh, and plant matter, but they chew it up basically, it's a primitive brick, and they build these breathing cathedrals. The towers that you see are not apartment blocks, it's actually a, a, a respiratory system for the dwellings underneath the ground and also a flood uh, bulwark. So that's right. what it actually is. So you're looking at these respiring towers, these cathedrals, all built one mouthful of mud at a time. I think that's pretty incredible. So getting back to the passion for wildlife and wild places, the more you know, the more astonishing it appears. And once you're addicted, as I am, <laughs> that's your life. <laughs> I guess you're fortunate in that you've been able to spend so much time immersing yourself in this world. And that sort of brings me to you know this another book you're bringing out uh, very shortly, which is a, a republication of uh, Bertrand Russell's classic essay in praise of wilderness, which he I think he actually wrote in 1932, right? That is correct. Um, what was it about that particular essay that uh, made you want to bring it back to life? Well, it was recommended to me by my uh, Brazilian publishers, Marcos and Tomás Pereira, um, two outrageously handsome and uh, adorable cariocas uh, from Rio. And uh, I, was at the, uh, I was at Book Expo America, which is one of the largest book fairs in the world, and I was exhausted. You know, my books had taken off and I was enjoying terrific success, but I was trying to maintain this ridiculously grueling schedule of two books a year delivered and 10 months touring, which was just too much for me at the time. And they saw me and they said, you look exhausted. And they offered me this, uh, this essay and I read it and it, it changed my life. I, uh, and it, it has become in many ways, a roadmap is, is a little bit too specific, but it's certainly been the guiding principle of everything that I do. And certainly my creative approach, I try to be as in line with Russell's thinking as I can. I can see why a, a karaoke suggested it to it because I, I feel like <laughs> <laughs> like it's sort of the essence of life. In, That's uh, right in, in Rio, <clears throat> but it, but it, in, in, you know one of the things that was extraordinary about that essay, and uh, you know when we we're talking before, I said, you know, Think and Grow Rich was really embraced in the eighties. Sure, you know, as kind of a a theory of greed as good almost. Right, that's Napoleon <laughs> Hill, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I it, remember reading that. But it feels like now at a time when. Um, you know, Bertrand Russell was 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 writing about these, you know, the remnants of feudalism. Mm -hmm. You know, the the kind of the British landowners who just didn't have to work. Yes. And and of course, the weird paradox that we talk about work as if it's virtuous, but it's really this myth propagated by those one or two percent who don't want the the working class to have holidays and have leisure time, and they should just be focused on allowing them to be able to be idle. 
Exactly so. I mean, in a way, if you were to be particularly cruel, and it doesn't just apply to the land of gentry, we have it now in the in the in the top one or two percent. Well, this is why it's, it's actually it's, it's, it's actually so relevant now. It folds over very neatly, almost yeah. scarily so, particularly when you consider the book was written at the at sort of the, the, almost at the nadir of, of the Great Depression, and uh, and yet uh, uh, here in America, you know, we've had the the global financial crisis not that long ago before I, I reissued this this volume. Um, I think if you're written really cruel, you would say that there's almost a, a battery hen type philosophy that is, is the seed of, of a great deal of bigotry and the abuse of the working class. This notion that, oh, they'll be happier if we just leave them, we put them in this little, this little box and we leave them there. Uh, that's, that's, that's fine for them. I need this. That's my burden, <laughs> but they, they, they're fine. Leave them in the suburbs, leave them in the factories, leave them in these mindless gray rooms, they'll be fine. It's incredibly uh, insulting and oppressive in that regard. But it's not just because it's a cruel and pointless way to live your life, but that you were capable of so much more intellectually. You had ideas within you that you were never able to unleash because you never had the time to actually and the energy to think about them and realize their potential. Yeah. And that is what a true egalitarian is, is not someone who believes in freedom for everybody. It's freedom of thought and the ability to express themselves. And collectively, our creative muscle is astonishing. But if some poor bastard has to put in 14 hours a day and then commute back and forth to work and then make dinner for his family and so forth, he is not going to spend time thinking up big ideas. He's going to turn on the television and pass out in a, in a puddle of sweat and broken dreams. And I think that's really, you know, the way Russell characterizes the traditional idea of work, which is, mm -hmm. a, <clears throat> I think he defines it as, what, what does he say? It's like, um, you know, moving matter. That's yeah, right. The, re <laughs> the relocations of materials very near the surface of the earth. Yeah, to another spot. Yeah, it's just, it, it, is, <laughs> it is hilariously... Uh, uh, you know, uh, it's beautifully described, and and there is something to that. What is what is work if it's if it, if it's not some purpose? Now we all have immediate needs we have to address. That we don't live in a utopia where we can just you know fly around eating uh, truffles. It, there's there's a very real immediate need that, that work addresses. But ultimately, the happiest people are those who find purpose in their in their endeavors, yeah. and who are able to take the best of themselves and share it with as many people as possible. It's certainly true of my profession in publishing and now in television and film. That's a driving force for me. So reading Russell at the time when I was incredibly, uh, I was overworked by my own choice and perhaps a little bit desperate and needy to try and fulfill the expectations of my publishers and other people. And I, and I wasn't doing enough as a human being to really realize my potential intellectually and creatively, intellectually and creatively Reading Russell, I just went, stop. I'm going to invest more time in doing the things that I love and thinking as deeply as I can about those and how I can make my life and other people's lives better. And it was from that point on, I was already invested in wildlife conservation. I was already doing a range of different projects. I stopped and I said, I have a responsibility to really dig deeper, to spend time thinking about, uh, thinking about answers for questions that don't currently exist. Yeah. That's what I need to do with my life. And so a lot of what sounds remarkable on paper now, the Russian space program, rocklifting championships in Polynesia, wildlife <laughs> conservation, you know, being sexually assaulted by giant bats, all that stuff came after I went, okay, this, I need to live a Russellian life. <laughs> and, and it's brought me tremendous joy. 
and a certain degree of, of, of suffering, but, <laughs> but mostly joy. And I'm very grateful because these opportunities bring other opportunities. I, for example, would not know John Cleese, who I mentioned earlier, and some other fabulous creative people that you may not have heard of, were it not for my passion for wildlife conservation. We're both lifetime benefactors of Gerald Durrell's uh, Conservation Trust in the UK. That's where we met at an annual general meeting. So doing something I was passionate about introduced me to one of my heroes. We're now friends and my life is so much richer. It's a very obvious progression, but one that you're not aware of until you really dive in. No, and, and, I, and I think the, the powerful question is how we can take the experience you've had and, and, and make it more generally applicable to everyone you know, who, who faces the prospect of work because it's considered the appropriate thing to do, right? And and it's just strange that you know, in the same way, there's this fallacy now we're talking about it's either the environment or jobs. Yes. Um, people now look at this question of work versus automation, saying that well, they don't actually question should we be working? Like, isn't the function of automation and technology? Even in Bertrand Russell's time, he was sort of lamenting the fact that we had all this technology, but somehow that didn't translate into less hours of working. True. Well, isn't that the most astonishing thing? Now, we're both old enough to have existed in a pre-personal you know, computer age. I remember my uncle... Who Which was, means we, we were used to having dinners with people who weren't checking their phone. Exactly. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, I remember my uncle, who was a mathematician, bringing uh, over the first uh, you know, laptop, as it were, an Osborne, came in a suitcase. Uh, I remember him bringing it over and was being amazed by it, but kind of thinking, well, that's what a mathematician needs, and fair enough. As technology has improved, we haven't got... Uh, we haven't found extra spare time, or most of us haven't chosen to take it. Now we're expected to do more, so we've got rid of all the telephone switchboard operators and we've got rid of all the filing clerks because we do that all ourselves now. So we have, we have access to more work, not more leisure time. And I often say this, you know, that particularly today, when we're so immersed in information as opposed to, as opposed to wisdom, we have plenty of information but not necessarily the knowledge of that. People often don't even feel it's important to memorize things anymore. Like having it in your head is less important than having it in your phone, which if you go to some of the places that you and I go is incredibly stupid because there's no phone service. An iPhone is basically a paperweight where I am in Alaska. So, uh, but you know, we have to be careful lest our dreams get lost you know, in the incandescent spume of the digital age. I say, <laughs> and I say that all the time because it's absolutely true. You're too busy doing these short-term little things and you don't stretch. And big projects take time. They take collaboration, they take blood, sweat and tears, and the rewards are enormous and you'll never ever feel that if you don't invest. Well, what is your creative process? Uh, do you, you must suffer like the rest of us from digital distraction. Sure, I'm, I'm less prone to it because I wasn't raised on it. And my, my parents were- You don't work in sort of a Faraday cage? <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite, uh, that's not a bad idea though. Um, so I, you know, try to, uh, keep books on paper. That's my Luddite, uh, my Luddite uh, pleasure. But, but what I do is I am very disciplined. So I'm ex-military. So it's very easy for me to say this has to be done and has to be done now. And so I focus my time on things in, in order of priority. I'm not perfect. I get distracted. I sloth off sometimes. But generally I'm pretty good and I do something like I invest something like 70% in my primary project and I put in my sessions of creative work, 20% in what I think the sequel will be or the, 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 the beta project, the next one. And then I only put 10% into my blue sky stuff, the crazy stuff that no one's really asking for, but I want to do. 
And if I stick to that, all three things get accomplished. And then, here's the important thing, creativity is not confined to my work as a creative professional on the page. That is, that is small-minded. And if you do that, you're no better than some, some cafe poet wanker who tells you how brilliant you is but never actually does anything about it. I subscribe to the Graham Greene point of view that excessive association with fellow authors is a form of masturbation. So I don't <laughs> hang out with them, I don't talk about it, I do it. My goal is to be a man that never bluffs. You know, I often say uh, a man of letters who's not also a man of action is a man of little consequence. So I stick to my principles, I stick to those priorities, and I get them done. And then I continue to apply my creative energy into realizing them at their fullest potential, all the way down. So from when before I had the idea, developing the idea, executing it, delivering it, the process that I stick to is, in, is three words, dream, think, do. Dream, think, do. Anyone, can, if you have some time, you can dream up a big idea. Very few people think it through. How do I actually make it happen? And fewer still actually do it, take action. That is how I get it done. You're a military man, so you, yes. you'd probably be familiar with the idea that few plans survive contact with the enemy. <laughs> that is so the expression. How, how did, what kind of adjustments did you have to make when you sort of were able to take that philosophy and you know, your uh, rural life living on a farm in Tasmania sure. when you actually came to Hollywood? Ah, well, first of all, I didn't come to Hollywood. Um, I was dragged here. I fell in love uh, with my wife now, but uh, then my girlfriend wasn't expecting to. And so, uh, as I often say, I don't live in Hollywood. My, life, my wife lives here and I live with my wife. I'm in romantic exile. I'm still in Tasmania as far as I'm concerned. Um, but it's been difficult. I don't like it. I don't like LA. I don't like big cities in general. It smells. There's too many people breathing this my This place air. seems to violate all of Graham Greene's uh, it fears is. and worst concerns. Well, he did spend a lot of time on Capri, which is highly overrated as an island retreat. So um, he's an interesting fellow. And of course, he was Catholic, so he could be unhappy anywhere. Yes. That's his gift. Um, it took me a while to adjust, and I had to mentally retrain myself to say, I hate living in this giant smelly city with the population of my entire country in a few square miles. I hate that. To what can I do here that I can't do anywhere else? And that led to new opportunities in television and film that I had not expected. Yeah. I mean, look at me, I'm a giant 300 pound hairy mass. I'm not someone who should be in front of a camera. And yet those opportunities have happened because of my unique background and the unique opportunities here. And you've got a film coming out based on your latest book, right? I do, that was extraordinary as well. So that's a book called Penguin Bloom about a true story of a family in Australia that undergoes great tragedy and yet is uh, in some ways able to salvage their life through uh, rescuing an injured wild bird, which is a, str a strange and beautiful story. In fact, the most moving true story I've ever heard. And again, that's about deciding what you're gonna be passionate about. So the father of that uh, family uh, took these beautiful photographs. His name's Cameron Bloom. He has a wonderful Instagram page called Penguin the Magpie. And at that time, it had tens of thousands of followers of these beautiful images of this little baby bird that they rescued. And now it's well over 100,000 and so forth. And publishers started calling him and saying, we love these images, can you uh, consider publishing a book with us? And he was not a writer, but realized that he wanted to do something bigger than that. And someone said to him, uh, why don't you do it like the Blue Day book, which was my most successful book. And he said, well, I know the Blue Day book guy. And he called me and asked me if I wanted to write it. And honestly, I didn't know. I wasn't looking for that kind of collaboration, but I spent some time researching it and I fell in love with his wife's courage, who is paralyzed in the story. She has a horrible accident. His compassion and talent, Cameron's a beautiful soul, takes amazing pictures because of his talent 
and his, his heart and the extraordinary character of this little bird. And so after two or three weeks of researching the story, I called him back and said, not only do I want to do it, I modestly feel I'm the best person to do it. I mm. have to do it. And, and so I did it. And we're very fortunate. It's been a bestseller in Australia, the UK, Germany, and uh, it launches here in the US in a month. And we've incredibly, Reese Witherspoon, uh, Naomi Watts, uh, are producing and starring in the film. What, what were the challenges in trying to get that up as a, as a movie? Well, what people can learn from my example is like, how... Do you, have a, do you have a cinematic universe? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have been committed to consistent and unrelating failure here in Hollywood over the last three, four years when I first tried to get a TV show up. I actually sold my first show, my first try. It was called Adventure Story, and it was a, a hilarious non-fiction history series about failed explorers. Right. And people loved it. Lionsgate grabbed it. And I was such an, even though for all my like world... the Crocodile Hunter meets the History Channel. A little bit like that. <laughs> and everything goes horribly wrong, and they're hilarious <laughs> stories. And what's so often the case, which I find interesting from my point of view today, is that these extraordinary individuals at the time failed to achieve what they set out to achieve. But in many cases, their original goals in current context are worthless. Who cares where the head of the Nile is? But they found other things on the way that, from a historical perspective, are fascinating. And yet none of us know who they are because they didn't achieve a claim in their time. I think it's important to review failures uh, as much as it is to review successes. So I, I sold this show straight away, signed a stupid deal that locked me up for two years and couldn't do anything else. The show was in development, never got up and died. And after that, I got representation, which I should have got from the beginning. And since then, I've sold about 20 other TV shows, of which none have succeeded, <laughs> not one. And now I have a couple of shows going. One actually has succeeded, but again, comes up my core passion. So I was here saying, what can I do in, in America that I can't do in Tasmania? Well, one of my passions has been bears. So I wanted to do a book about bears. So I started researching... You mean the furry kind, not the San Francisco kind? I'm open-minded. Um, if they're big enough, <laughs> I'll take your interest. So I ended up looking for the largest bears I could find that also overlap with an indigenous culture I didn't know about. And I ended up in this little place called Kutznoi, Fortress of the Bears, also known as Ostrov Kutznoi by the Russians, um, Island of Fear. And these giant bears and the Klingit people, I didn't know anybody. I got on a plane, got another plane, got on a seaplane, got on a boat, ended up there. The first year, no one spoke to me. Second year, they talked to me a little bit. Third year, they liked me. Fourth year, they loved me. And this, the fifth year, I did a two-hour documentary for Animal Planet, which will be out in September. And I was adopted into the Klingit tribe, into the Deshitan clan, and now I have a Klingit name, and I'm family. So that's an extraordinary, virtuous circle of what happens when you take risks and do things that maybe not everybody could do, and certainly no one expecting me to do, and therein lies the pleasure of being a creative person who's also bold enough to take action on their crazy ideas. Well, BTG, it's been great to see you. Uh, you're still the best bear that I know. Uh, <laughs> thank so you. Thank you for being on the show. Pleasure, mate. Lovely to see you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.